Red pill or blue pill? Now, you've seen this before. Right? This whole red pill, blue pill thing that comes out of the movie The Matrix, uh, where Morpheus, you know, he poses the question to our main character, Neo, and take the blue pill, and then you go back to your old life. You go back to seeing the world the way you've always seen it, even though you know something's really wrong. Or you take the red pill, and you take a leap down the rabbit hole, and you learn everything. Uh, the Matrix is based on this idea that the world is not what it seems, that there's something underlying that's going on that's really, really big. And this idea has been around, it's very popular in our popular culture, in our television, in our movies, our TV shows. I mean, you know, The Wizard of Oz and The Man Behind the Curtain, or, of course, The Matrix. And, and these days, it's, it's the upside-down dimension in Stranger Things, or so I'm told. I don't have Netflix, never seen Stranger Things. People keep telling me, Charles, you got to watch them. I go, I know, I know, okay, I will, I'll get to it. But, but my point is this. There's this world that we see. Right? The physical world, the physical universe. We have the human world. We got culture. We got television, music, internet, people, history, society, politics, all of that. But then there is what's going on underneath. Something that's bigger. Something that's more important. That's something that if you see it, will change everything. But it's hidden. And you have to choose to see it. And so the blue pill, red pill thing has entered into our cultural lexicon. Blue pill represents conventionality, continuity, not rocking the boat. And red pill represents the truth. Truth that is harsh, truth that is uncomfortable, truth that will transform how you see yourself and how you see in your world and how you live in this world. Today we are looking at a passage that is the Bible's version of the red pill. Today we're looking at Psalm 2. Now Psalm 2 claims to be telling us what's truly going on underneath. That all the stuff we tell ourselves, all the story and the history we tell ourselves, that's all surface. That's all exterior. Psalm 2 tells us that something else is going on. And it poses to us that all-important question. The blue pill or the red pill? Before I keep going, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. I want to agree all of you joining us right now, whether you're in Madison, Dane County, Wisconsin, around the country, around the world, <laughs> and, and to the Chinese speakers, uh, but to all of you, everybody, welcome to Blackhawk Church. We're so glad you're here with us. Now, we're in a, our summer, a summer series on the book of Psalms, and it's called If I'm Honest. And back in May, when I introduced this series, I said that the book of Psalms is a, is a collection of about 150 poems written by various ancient Israelites for various purposes. And then these poems were collected and then edited and then brought together and formed into one book. And this is the structure of the book of Psalms. You see that most of the Psalms are, are in these five books, and then there is a five-psalm conclusion called the Hallelujah Psalms. It just brings the whole book into this explosive, dynamic, worshipful conclusion. And then there's a two-psalm introduction right in the front, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Um, I talked about Psalm 1 last May. Today, we're talking about Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is part of the introduction to the entire book of Psalms. Why? Because Psalm 2 is a summary of the entire story of the Bible. Now, I'm thinking some of you didn't know that. That there are actually passages in the Bible that are kind of like summary statements of the whole thing. And Psalm 2 is one of those. Psalm 2 is the story of the Bible in 12 verses. But here's something else about Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is nobody's favorite psalm. 
I mean, seriously, if Psalm 2 is your, before today, if Psalm 2 is your favorite psalm, email me. I want to hear from you. But I'm not holding my breath. Because Psalm 2 is not that popular because Psalm 2 is the Bible's red pill. It tells the uncomfortable truth that the world is not what it seems and here's what's really going on. I hope you're intrigued. Let's read Psalm 2 together. Psalms 2. Psalm 2. Salmo 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? Los reyes de la tierra se rebelan, los gobernantes se confabulan contra el Señor y contra su ungido. Y dice, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, He establecido mi rey sobre Sion, mi santo monte. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. You said to me, You are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me, I will make the nations your inheritance. You will break them with rod of iron, and you will dash them into pieces like pottery. Therefore, your kings be wise. Be warned, your rulers of the earth. Sirvan al Señor con temor, con temblor ríndale alabanza. Kiss his son, or he will be angry. And your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in moments. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Dichosos los que en él buscan refugio. Blessed are all who take refuge in the Lord. Amen. All right, Psalm 2. Now, you probably noticed um, this is not a prayer. Psalm 2 is more like drama. It's like a stage play where there's different voices. Uh, you got the voice of the narrators and voice of different characters. And, and, and this drama gradually unfolds and reveals an underlying story. So let's begin with the narrator's voice in verse 1. The narrator says, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Now, this is from the New International Version 2011. I also uh, put on here uh, the American Standard Version ASV and its translation, and reads like this, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate a vain thing? And you're probably noticing, wait a minute, those two do not sound like the same translation. Now, I don't have time to get into why the translations differ so much, but for various reasons, I think the ASV has the better translation here. For one, the verb for conspire is Hebrew ragash, which most likely means to be in turmoil, to be in some kind of a trembling or tremor state or writhing state. Hence, why do the nations rage? The, the second line, the verb there for plot is haga, and it means to meditate. Now, does that ring a bell for some of you? For those of you who heard the sermon back in May on Psalm 1, you remember that Psalm 1 says, Blessed are those who haga, those who meditate, those that chew on Yahweh's teaching. That's that same verb right there. It's here. It's an intentional contrast. Psalm 1 says, Blessed are those who haga, who meditate on Yahweh's teaching. Well, what about everybody else? What are the peoples doing? Well, they're hagaing reek, which means emptiness or empty thing. Hence the translation, why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate a vain thing? The verse 1 describes the brokenness of our world. And this brokenness is marked by two things. The nations are in a state of rage and the peoples meditate empty things. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see this verse, I think, wow, this applies to our society today perfectly. We are an angry people. We are 
an enraged people. Everybody knows that we're in an outraged society. Our, our, our news feeds, right? They know that the more outraged we are, the more likely we are to watch whatever they want to show us and whatever they want us to click on. Whether it's your cable news or your Facebook news feed or your, 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 your Instagram links, outrage gets the clicks, outrage gets the eyeballs. And we are angry. We're upset about all kinds of things, about politics, about race, about police, about riots, about whether to open school or not open school, whether to wear masks or not wear face masks. We are angry. We are angry. And on top of that, we are endlessly distracted. We are just surrounded by streams of all kinds of videos and memes and pics and Instagram posts and Netflix series that flashes through the mind, forgotten within minutes or even seconds. The textbook definition of empty things. Now, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not judging anybody. I watch as much pointless stuff as everybody else. Our family, we're, we're really getting into this thing called Marble Olympics. I, I, I kid you not. This is awesome, okay? Mar Actual marbles racing each other, doing hurdles, doing sprints, doing underwater racing, doing long jump, doing balancing beam. It's exciting. Our family is cheery. It's so cool. It's amazing. And this is the definition of meditating on empty things. What's your poison? What empty things are you filling up your mind with? The story of Psalm 2 begins... We live in a world of rage and shallowness. This is the symptom of our world. Anger plus a culture that celebrates triviality. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples meditate on empty things? Where does that come from? What is the cause? Verses 2 and 3. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against Yahweh. When you see the word Lord in all caps, that's God's personal name, Yahweh. Against Yahweh and against his anointed. What well, really the Hebrew is Mashicho, or just his Messiah. Against Yahweh against, and against his Messiah, his king. Saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. This is the beginning of the red pill, folks. Verses 2 and 3 says there's a world war that is going on. Did you know that? Were you aware that there's a world war going on? I think most of us are going, wait, what is he talking about? Okay, now this is not the kind of war that we typically think of. It's not a nation versus nation, like, you know, Axis and allies in, in the Second World War, or a war of ideology, say, like the Cold War. No, the war in Psalm 2 is a very specific type. It's a war between the kings of the earth and the rulers on one side, and Yahweh and his anointed on the other side. And more than that, it's not just a world war. It's a war of revolution. Look at verse 3. Breaking, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Who's in charge in the story? Who is the rightful power in the story? Well, it's Yahweh. He created the world. It's his. And so the rulers of the earth, the kings of the earth, they are out to overthrow Yahweh and his Messiah. This is a revolution. This is a coup d'etat. Now, who are these people? Who are these rulers, these rulers, these human leaders? Well, in the original, when the original author wrote Psalm 2, most likely he's thinking about the human kings that run the various nations around Israel. But even back then, the people understood that these kings, they represent spiritual beings, the gods worshipped in these nations. So by the time we get to, to Jesus, this teaching just gets really, really clear. Jesus says, what's going on in our world 
is not merely a human rebellion, it's a rebellion in the spiritual realm. Okay, this is where the rabbit hole just gets really deep, guys, really deep. And so this is really important. I'm going to say it as clearly as I possibly can. There are many spiritual beings apart from God. Like humans, they are all created by God. And like humans, they can, and some of them have rebelled against God. The, the spiritual beings that have rebelled against God, the Bible calls them demons, and their leader is Satan. <laughs> okay, now you guys are like, whoa, this just got really crazy all of a sudden, right? What are we talking about? Satan in the Bible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, uh, we did a whole series on this called The Invisible Realm. It's a seven-part sermon series plus, you know, videos and, and live Q&A. It's all on our website. Go check it out okay, if you wanted the bigger picture. But in Psalm 2, the rulers of the world, the, the kings of the earth, they represent the spiritual beings that want to run the world for themselves. They have declared war on God. They want to overthrow God. The world is at war. Now, that just sounds really weird, right? That's not how we see our world. And so what Psalm 2 does is it just, Psalm 2 just forces us to ask the question, well, how do you see the world? And I think for many of us, we, we, we see the world, we go, ah, the world is just full of people. Right? A lot of people, and, and people are generally pretty good, and we're just, we're just trying to do our best. We're trying to survive and go through our days and living our lives and doing the best we can. And, and most of us are good people with maybe with few bad apples. And Psalm 2 says, no, 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 that's not what's going on. What's going on in the world is not billions of people living their lives, just doing their thing. That's what it looks like on the surface. What's underneath, what's really going on, is a warfare in the spiritual realm, pitting Yahweh and his Messiah on one side against Satan and his demons on the other side. We are at war, folks. And so the, the story of Psalm 2 continues. We live in a world of rage and shallowness because the demonic rulers of this world have rebelled against God. All right, this is like, this is the red pill, folks. Um, how are you guys doing? I'm thinking some of you think, man, I should have gone with a blue pill. Well, there's more. Let's keep going. Verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The, war, the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So how does God respond to this rebellion? Well, he laughs, he scoffs, he rebukes, he terrifies. And the basis of his reaction, his position. He's the one enthroned in heaven. He has absolute power over the situation. The whole idea of a rebellion is ridiculous. It'd be like for those of you who are parents of young children, like, like you have your, your four-year-old toddler you know, comes up to you and says, Mommy and Daddy, me and my you know, two-year-old brother, we are taking over the house, and we want you to stay out of our business. How would you respond to that? You'd probably like laugh. You know, you like take a picture, put it on Instagram, title it, cute things my kids say to me, and you know, it's going to be like get a ton of likes. Uh, that's because four-year-olds are cute when they say things like this. Um, for fully grown adults and spiritual beings, not so much. They're not as cute. But that doesn't change the power dynamics. God has more power over our world than parents have over their toddlers. But what does change is that the smiles and laughter 
turns to anger and derision. Because when leaders of the world, the spiritual beings that run this world, start rebelling against God, people get hurt. And when that happens, God gets angry. That's part of his character. And I know many of us were really uncomfortable with the idea of God being angry, the wrath of God thing. No, 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 no. But that comes out of our view of the world. You see, if we see the world as just full of people, everybody doing the best they can, just trying to survive and get through life, if that's how you see the world, then yeah, of course, God, just cuss people some slack. Right? Forgive people. Give them a break. That makes total sense. But if you see the world through Psalm 2, if you see a clash, a war that's going on, and you see the leaders of this world, they are hurting people. They're damaging families and societies. They are exploiting the poor, the powerless, enslaving peoples, destroying our environment. They're engaged in sex trafficking and committing genocide. When that happens, there is anger and rage in heaven. God gets mad, and he is rightfully so. And you know what God does when he gets mad? He appoints a king. I have installed my king, that's the Messiah, on Zion, my holy mountain. That's Jerusalem. And so the story of Psalm 2 continues. We live in a world of rage and shallowness because the demonic rulers of this world have rebelled against God. In response, God has established this king on earth, his Messiah. Now, how does establishing a king fix the problem? Let's keep going. The next section, well, we have a change in voice. We have now the king talking. The Messiah is now talking. And the Messiah says, by the way, he quotes, he spent a lot of time quoting God, okay? I will proclaim Yahweh's decree. So I'm going to quote what God says to me now. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Now this psalm was originally performed at the coronation ceremony of ancient kings of Israel and Judah. And the idea behind that is that on the moment, on the day of their accession, when they become king, God adopts them as children. So they become a son of God, which is standard practice in the ancient world, right? Because kings were known to be semi-divine. But you know, the problem with this passage is really verse 8, where God makes the promise to the king and says, hey, I'm going to make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. That never happened. The kings of ancient Israel, ancient Judah, never, ever ruled the whole world. Okay? It's just kind of like a fantasy. It never happened. So by the time we get to the New Testament, we realize, the New Testament author says, you know, this Psalm 2 is really about Jesus. And we find that out early on in Jesus' life. When Jesus gets baptized, when he just starts his public ministry, and we, we see this described in the Gospel of Mark, God shows up and he starts talking. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Did you see that? God quotes Psalm 2. God is just trying to make it clear. Hey, guys, listen up. Psalm 2 is about my son, Jesus. And the New Testament authors pick up on this. You see in the book of Acts. You see in the book of Hebrews. They all quote Psalm 2. And they say, hey, Psalm 2 is about Jesus, the Messiah. But he is not a human king becoming adopted to be a son of God. No, no, he's a true son of God who becomes a human king. 
He, he is not human gaining divine status. He is God gaining human status. You see the difference, right? This is the great move in the reinterpretation of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 in the New Testament is about Jesus, the Messiah. So the question is, how will Jesus establish his reign? How will he build the kingdom of God on earth? How will he deal with the rebellious spirits and the human leaders of this world? Well, you know, to make omelets, you've got to break some eggs. And so Psalm 2 verse 9 says, God says to the king, you will break them with a rod of iron and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Iron rod, pottery. The Messiah is coming to smash the leaders of this world, the rebellious spirits and humans who are trying to overthrow God's rule. The Messiah is coming to smash like the Hulk, you know, Hulk smash, you know. That's the expectation. That's what everybody thinks is going to happen when the Messiah shows up. And that's what happened when Jesus finally came. If you guys remember from the unexpected series, we talked about the Gospel of Mark. Jesus shows up. Everybody says, you need to be this military leader. You need to smash and bang heads. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am going to triumph. But not by smashing. Not by banging heads. I'm going to triumph by dying for the world on the cross. And Jesus actually explains this. On the night before he died, in the Gospel of John, he lays it out for his disciples. And now, I want you to, before I show the passage, I want you to pay attention to who Jesus identifies as his enemy and what Jesus thinks the cross is doing. Okay? Gospel of John, chapter 12. Jesus talking the night before he's killed. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now the last line there, the narrator is just being really helpful. Okay. He's making it clear. John's making it clear. Hey, Jesus is talking about the cross. And this is one of the very few places where Jesus actually explains the meaning of the cross. And what is the meaning of the cross, Jesus? It's judgment. And we're like, wait, 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 Jesus, wait, wait, wait. Hey, stop, Jesus, stop. Is the cross about grace? Now, if Jesus were here, he'd be like, well, yeah, it's grace for you. But in the grand scheme of things, grace, the cross is judgment. The cross is combat. Against whom? The prince of this world. Who's the prince of the world? The rebellious spirit leading the charge against God, Satan. Satan will be driven out. How? When Jesus is lifted up on the cross and draws all people to himself. Whoa. Okay, this, think about this. Okay? This is how Jesus sees the cross. Imagine Jesus on the cross. He's, he's hurting. He's dying. And this is what he's thinking. He's thinking, you demonic spirits, you guys are, who are destroying this world, I am smashing you right now with a rod of iron. I am going to dash you to pieces like pottery. Why? Because by this cross, I am taking the people you have under your control and I'm taking them away from you. I'm taking them right from under your noses. I'm going to make them mine. They're going to follow me. They're going to adopt my character and share my values. The cross is combat. The cross is judgment. After his death and his resurrection, Jesus sees himself as the victor. He thinks he's won. 
So here's a very familiar passage in Matthew chapter 28 where Jesus gives this command. Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is called the Great Commission. This tells us what the mission of the people of God, this is just awesome. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Baptizing, teaching in order to create obedience. That's our calling, right? Our mission at Blackhawk Church is building a community to reach a community. That comes right out of this passage. But here's the question. What is the basis for this command? Right? It says, therefore, what is the basis of this command? Why go and make disciples? Is it because people are lost and confused and they need good teaching? Is it because people are broken and sinful, they need forgiveness and grace from God? Is it because they're doomed to hell and they need to be saved into heaven? Well, verse 18 tells us, right before, the verse right before tells us the basis for this command. Verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah that has all the power. I am the Messiah of Psalm 2. I have smashed the rebellious spirits of this world. I have achieved a decisive victory. I have died on the cross for the world. Therefore, I have all the authorities in heaven and on earth. So now it is the time for the nations to, to return their allegiance to me. So therefore, go and make disciples and teaching them to obey everything I command. Make a people who will pledge their allegiance, their loyalty, their obedience to me as the emperor of the world. <laughs> now, this is a summary. We live in a world of rage and shallowness because the demonic ruler of this world has rebelled against God. And God has established his king on earth, his Messiah, who has decisively defeated the demonic rulers by dying for the world on the cross. Now, some of you are thinking, whoa, this is so weird. This is so weird, right? I'm thinking Jesus is a super nice guy. He teaches us how to live a good life. What is all this stuff about warfare and, and demonic spirits and and and?" smashing pottery with iron rods. Where's all this violence and anger coming from? Oh, look, I totally get it, okay? I get, I get it. We have a way of seeing Jesus. We have a way of seeing Jesus in our culture, that he is mild, he is gentle, he is soft-spoken. And, and, and Psalm 2's vision of Jesus as this emperor of the world who, who commands allegiance and authority and, and obedience it's almost like a superhero who's leading the fight against the spiritual powers of this world. That's just a stretch. It's hard for us to get there. It's just hard for us to get there. And so, um, you know, it, it takes time. And we're going to talk about, in two weeks, we're going to talk about this again. We're going to talk about Psalm 110. And it's another psalm about Jesus as the Messiah. So we are going to get there. Okay. Uh, but what's going to happen next is... Um, we, we need to, for, for us, we need to understand that, that what is going on in our world is that there's a warfare. 
and we need to decisively defeat um, the, 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 the Satan and the rulers. So here's how we to, to respond. The final section of the psalm tells us, okay, therefore you kings be wise, be warned you rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and or your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The final session, the narrator, this is pretty straightforward, right? The narrator is talking to the kings and the rulers of this world and is basically saying, hey guys, listen up. You're gonna lose. You're gonna lose. So it's not too late to turn around. Not too late to turn and say, hey, serve Yahweh. Kiss his son. Or he's going to get mad. <laughs> and that's how Psalm 2 ends, folks. This is the red pill. This is how the whole thing finishes. This is what Psalm 2 says is the true reality of our world. How are you guys doing? I think for some of you, this may be the first time you've ever heard. First time you've ever heard about this underlying reality. Right? This may be the first time. Right? And you think, how do I respond to this? How do I respond to this? Well, the, the challenge of this psalm is that it forces us to see the world differently. It challenges to see the world differently. We have this world that we see, we have the underlying reality. It says, you need to change. How so? Well, it's simple. Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? We live in a world that is at war. The rebellious spirits are running the world and they're hurting people and God is trying to reconquer it and he's doing it through the Messiah. Are you for God or are you against God? Are you for the Messiah or are you against the Messiah? There's no middle ground. Now, some people, some people might say, well, hey, why can't I just stay out of this? When God's over here, Satan's over here, I'm, I'm third party. I'm, I'm, I'm neutral ground. I'm Switzerland. And, and I would say, you don't get it. You don't know, you don't understand who we are in this reality. We're, we're not a third power that we can triangulate between God and Satan. We're the territory they're fighting over. Do you understand that? That there is no neutral ground. There is no Switzerland. And in this situation, not making a decision is a decision. Whose side are you on? Jesus, the Messiah, is calling people to join his side. This is his invitation. This is what he would say to us. Come as you are. Come as you are. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you're struggling with. You are loved and embraced exactly as you are because I died for you on the cross. And in doing so, I have decisively defeated the rebellious spirits of this world. So here's what I want. I want you to know me the way I know you. I want you to become a person who understands my kingdom and shares my values so that you can live them out in the world, so you can participate in this great mission to establish my reign here on earth. Come as you are, but I will not leave you unchanged. 
That's the Messiah's invitation. Will you join Jesus and help him transform the world? Now, for those of us who have made the decision, we know this is not, this is not the kind of decision that's once and for all, kind of a one-time thing. It's a decision we make every day. Every day we have to choose to see the world through the lens of Psalm 2. It's waking up and going, what will I do today to help prosper the kingdom of God? What will I do today to help make disciples, to draw people to Jesus? What will I do today to live out God's love for the world? What will I do today to help God establish his justice in our society? What will I do today? So I want to I end um, our time here with, with, a story of, with a story of Andrew Stendhal. Uh, we're going to hear from him in a bit. And as you listen to his story, I want you to pay attention not just to the part where, where he decides to follow Jesus, but instead I want you to focus on what that decision does, what taking that red pill does, and how it reverberates throughout his life and the lives of others around him. Because that's what taking the red pill does. When we adopt the understanding of Psalm 2, everything changes. Roll clip. So hi, my name is Andrew, and this is a bit of my story. So I would say it started early on, like many people, going to church with my parents and two younger siblings. Went through the motions, did the classes, and then in elementary school, things, we stopped going for whatever reason, and things got difficult with family, parents split in eighth grade, and from then on out, I never went back, so I was pretty much lost through all high school and just that teenage angst trying to figure it all out. and. My brother and I, he was two years younger than me, we would get into it quite a bit. And my senior year, we actually got into one really bad fist fight. And the next day, he moved out as a sophomore. And he burned bridges with multiple people, multiple family members, and I just kind of moved on with my life and wasn't sure if I'd see him again, really. Went off to school my freshman year, a guy named Chris with Crew asked if I had any questions about Jesus or the Bible or any of that. And he's going door to door in the dorms, toughest job in the world. Everybody's laughing him off, and I'm like, yeah, man, I got a million questions. He knows his Bible so well. He's so confident, and he's loved by this God, and I wanted that, and I'd been searching for that. So then I gave my life to Christ through that. Came home that summer after my first year of school, and then some brothers started a company here in Madison, and then they gave me a job. They invited me to Blackhawk, and so things seemed to be going pretty well, and then my brother reached out just wanted to get back in the family and wanted to come to family events again and so then brought him back in and then he met these guys and then he started coming to Blackhawk and then he gave his life to Christ and now he has a, a newborn son and just the ripple effect that that has has just been amazing to see through multiple messages here at Blackhawk it just keeps encouraging us to move into those difficult situations and move towards difficult people and be vulnerable and keep God at the center of all of that we fail him pretty much every day in some way, and he keeps coming back to us. Um, so there's just been this theme of people reaching out and not really knowing what that ripple effect is gonna be. And that just inspires me, whether it was through high school ministries to give back and keep reaching out to younger people, or now through CAM, um, just trying to share my life and my experiences um, with others, because you just don't know how you'll impact somebody. And, and God does that for us every single day. And, I want to do that for others.